Hey there, Giant Robots listeners. We've got an amazing show for you today with David Cancel, the CEO and co-founder of Drift. But wanted to let you know that we had some minor technical difficulties at the beginning of the episode. We iron it all out fairly quickly, but just wanted to give you a quick heads up that the first 90 seconds are a little rough, but it's all smooth sailing after that. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Giant robots smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robots Smashing to Other Giant Robots podcast, where we explore the design, development, and business of great products. I'm your host, Chad Pytel, and with me today is David Cancel, CEO and co-founder at Drift.com. So I'm curious, do you remember or is there a specific point in time where you remember deciding to start Drift? Actually, the last company that I was part of, I decided that I was going to leave. And that kind of that was the triggering moment of me kind of considering what I wanted to do next. And there were like a couple option options I was thinking about. One was do nothing, and two was maybe do some in- investing. And then the third was maybe I have one more company left in me. And that company, that idea, that train of thought turned into drift. So I was curious about the idea in part because being here in Boston, from my memory, you were stealth in the beginning. You weren't talking about what you were doing. Yeah. And I was wondering whether it was because you didn't know. (laughs) (laughs) That's always partially the answer. Okay. Yeah. No, the, you know, the reason, uh, was, well, we had an idea, we had a concept of what we were trying to do, kind of the change that we saw in the world. And, um, we were basically off validating that and working since day one with a handful of ever expanding groups of customers. And so we were so busy doing that, that it was not like an active thing of like, oh, we want to be stealthy. It was just like, hey, we don't even have time to put up a website or to tell anyone what we're doing. We're just busy like investigating what we're doing. And we were very, very, very slow about, you know, eventually having a website and starting to say what we were doing. So how close to the original idea that you had (laughs) is what you ended up launching with? I think, you know, I can look back. There's one version that I can look back and say it's a twisty road, but, you know, the gem was always there for sure. What did the product actually look like? What were the features in the product and all that stuff? That's definitely wildly changed for sure. But the cha- we started with this idea of like I was obsessed about this market shift that we were undergoing of messaging all of a sudden. And we see it in Slack and we see it in all these companies becoming something that normal people wanted to adopt. I mean, all of us developers, designers, and, you know, these, all of us geeky people have been using messaging forever, right? I've been using messaging for, you know, 20 something years professionally, everything from IRC to ICQ to whatever. But those things were always subscale. They were like even Skype, which we're on right now was, it took like five years to get to 150 million users, which was massive. But then because of the smartphone, we saw this thing happen where it just became normal. And then within five years, we went from those couple hundred million people using messaging to multiple billions of people using messaging, Mm -hmm. that was the shift. And so I was obsessed around that of like, whoa, that's weird. What was the difference between HipChat and some of the stuff that we used before and Slack? Well, there's a bunch of beautiful things and onboarding and this and brand and all of the stuff that we can all talk about. But really, there was a big difference in that the market had changed pretty quickly. And at Mm -hmm. a time that HipChat was busy being acquired by Atlassian and kind of revamping internally. And Slack came in at that exact right moment in history and just like took off. And there's countless other examples. That's not to discount Slack whatsoever. They've done an amazing job. It's just to say 
there is a part of that that was propelled by this external momentum that was happening yeah. in the market, which is also propelling us. You know, we started with a live chat product, like live chat's been around for 20 something years. Right. There's not anything really new about that. But the difference was now using messaging was normal and before it was weird, right? right. And that's an important thing to think about when you think about starting companies, which I used to never when I started my first company, this is my fifth, I used to think about ideas and products and features and this. I'm originally a software engineer and never really thought about, well, is the market ready? You know, does the market care right now? Is this the right time to start this type of business? So for those uh, listening who may not be familiar with Drift or mm -hmm. maybe who are, but just know what your feature set is, <laughs> what is Drift to you? Yeah, so... Uh, the way I think about Drift is Drift is us going back to the way that we would do market and sell a company, a product in the past, which is human-human connection. And so how do we facilitate that? And how do we go back to that kind of authentic feeling? Because we had gone so far in marketing and sales towards automation, unauthentic kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And so how do we go back to that? And we said, well, we use all sorts of technology, but like, what about if we just got back to simple things like hey, if there's a customer who walks onto my website or my store, like maybe I should talk to them. Maybe there's a problem we can help them solve. Like that sounds pretty obvious to all of us, but like we had gone so far away from that kind of idea in, in terms of chasing scale and chasing automation and doing all that stuff. And I built a lot of those kind of things mm -hmm. that we had forgotten that very thing. And so what Drift is, is a return to that. We call it conversational marketing, conversation sales, but really it's just like, it's a way for connect customers and to rethink all the communication channels that we have with our soon-to-be customers or existing customers and think about, like, how would we rebuild these things today? Like, I built email platforms, marketing automation, CRMs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But now I look back at all those things that I've built. And in today's context, because the world has changed and because we have different expectations and because all of us as consumers, right, are actually the buyers of all this software, we've been hearing about you know, the uh, consumerization of the enterprise for like a decade now. And now it's actually true. Like all of us buy software and services all day for our businesses. Like now, like how do we actually deliver on that kind of consumer experience and rethink all these channels? Like I think about email marketing. I think a lot of it is doesn't actually make any sense. I think about the way that we were using live chat in the past actually doesn't make any sense. I think about all these different channels and think like they need to be reimagined for a world where, we care about experiences. We expect uh, businesses to be able to be on demand real time and cater to my needs all the time. And where we have all the power and the companies have very little power, right? And by the way, a lot of this is happening because we're moving to a place of infinite supply. I can buy any type of software. I could probably have 100 alternatives to that software. Right. Any kind of product, I have a 1,000 alternatives to that product. So that's a different world from when we were doing SaaS and we would have three competitors in the market, right? So it's just a realization of the world that we're in. That's a very long answer to your question of how I would describe Drift. Uh, it's, it's great. So given that idea, that vision, that purpose mm -hmm. that you originally set out with, so you decide to quit your job. You say, I got mm -hmm. this one more in me. Yep. What did you do at that point? What did you said we focused on validation and, mm -hmm. and what did that actually look like? Well, the way it looked is uh, my co-founder who had co-founded my last business with me also quit and uh, he's our CTO. Mm -hmm. And so the two of us set out and said like, well, how are we going to do this? You know, like maybe we'll bootstrap this business. Maybe we'll just fund it ourselves. And we end pretty quickly ended up raising some money from past investors. 
which is a whole different tangent. But like, then we set off and said, okay, how do we start interviewing people? We think there's a gem here around messaging is going to change the way that kind of the buying experience and the way that we communicate inside of businesses. So we were focused on businesses. And so what is that going to mean? And so we did a whole bunch of tests and we built a product originally that looks like if you go to Dropbox now and you do um, open up one of your files and you can leave comments along the side and mm -hmm. chat along the side and paper does that as well, their product. We actually built a product that was exactly like that. And then one day we wake up and they have almost it was like uh -huh. it was eerie because it was almost like pixel for pixel, the exact same thing. Sidebar on the right, you know, mm -hmm. asset, whatever it is, file, movie, whatever on the left. Like I was just like, oh, wow. OK, I guess that's that. I guess it's too late for that. So we quickly changed that. But in that model, it was really the artifact being the video, the file, the whatever being the primary thing. And then the messaging was kind of the secondary mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. And then we did one more experiment where we said, you know, what about if we go visual annotation, like, and we call this product annotate and we like draw on videos, draw on pictures. And you know what happened quickly after that, like that became very popular in a, an app called Snapchat. Right. And, uh, and Instagram, it was just like, you know, it's not like everyone has these uh, same right. realizations at the same time. Right. And so we saw that come out and we were like, oh, OK. But in that process of doing that annotation thing, we were interviewing customers and users of that. And we saw that people didn't actually when we talked to them inside of businesses, they didn't actually care about the video, the image part. What they cared about and they valued more than anything was the communication to their customers about that thing. Mm -hmm. So it was the communication they cared about. And so we said, Let's forget about the image and the file and the whatever. Let's just make communication the centerpiece. So that was kind of like the road, kind of the twisty road to get to where we are, where we just actually removed things and really focused on that communication piece. Mm -hmm. You mentioned in coming up with these ideas and prototyping them out, new products would come out and it would influence <laughs> your decision making. But yep. then you also previously said, you know, chat was done before. Yep. So... How do you think about competition mm -hmm. uh, and does it stop you? Does it encourage you? Like, how do you, how do you think about it? Yeah, it's a good question. All of the above. I mostly don't think about competition mm -hmm. and I can say more about that. Uh, but in the case of these two examples with Snapchat and Dropbox, the reason that it was important was that we were searching not for the end product, but for our entry point into the market. Mm -hmm. Right. And these were at a massive scale enough that it would be hard for us to use that narrow little interesting thing that we were working on as our primary entry point. And so that is why we stopped there. Once we stopped there and we actually focused on what Drift is now and we launched in April of 2016, we no longer really cared about competition. To this day, don't care about competition. I probably say that a lot and that's probably what I'm known for. I really care about this customer thing. I even I wrote a blog post like in when I started my last business in 2010, nine or something like that. And that old blog post, it was called like true competition. And my whole thing in that blog post was like that someone came up to me at some conference and said, hey, I'm your competitor. And my answer was like, you're not my competitor. And they were like, no, no, I compete totally with you. And I was like, you're not my competitor. My competitor, and I explained to them, my competitor is this big giant problem in the world. And that's who I consider my competitor. And th But they just kept arguing with me about like, <laughs> no, I am a competitor. And I was like, look, the true competition for both of us, the number one thing that we're competing against is indifference, right? Mm -hmm. Like indifference is the competition because most of what we create and end up creating, whether it's a product, a company or whatever, will die from indifference, meaning that no customer actually cares about what we created. 
And so you're not my competition. My competition is this indifference, right? And ultimately, I want to compete with this other thing. And I said, also, if the market today is me and you as competitors, guess what? It's not a market. Right. This is not a market if it's just like me, you, like three people competing against kind of indifference and there's actually no market there. Mm-hmm. So that's how I think about competition. Like I think competition is we're all competing for the limited amount of time and amount of caring that we have left in our target kind of customer, whoever our customer is. Like they can't care about too many things, right? Like we're busy with our lives and like we don't care about your neat invention or product or whatever. Like we care about selfishly about like how it's going to affect my life. And I only have enough mental bandwidth for n number of things. And so we're competing for that time and then uh, trying to avoid indifference in that customer base. That's the, that's the true competition. And the reason I rant so much about that is that that I spent so much of my early, kind of my first 10 years starting companies really focused on, because coming as a product guy, really focused on the features and this and like who's my competitor and mm-hmm. so much. Of that. And then I realized like this, it doesn't matter. Like once you actually start talking to customers and spending time with them, you learn like they don't really care about any of that other stuff too. They care about like their problem, right? Mm-hmm. Like how are we going to solve a problem? And we were all lost in those early stage companies thinking about each other and reading in whatever the equivalent of TechCrunch was before TechCrunch about like another new competitor in this and freaking out and and thinking, and it was just crazy. Yeah. So you mentioned you started on the product side. That is the technical side, right? Yes, software. Yeah, Yeah. so I was an engineer early Mm -hmm. on in the early days of the internet. How did you transition and what was that transition like from being focused on the engineering side to product and then business? Yeah. So I was an engineer and I was mainly, this was early days of the internet, like 95, 96, early days of the commercial internet. And uh, it was awesome. It was kind of like we were pirates back then. We were all just making stuff up. There was no stack exchange or mm-hmm. even O'Reilly didn't have really from a book standpoint in these days. It came pretty quickly after that. And so we were just making all this stuff up. The way that I transitioned was that I had a superpower that I didn't actually know about. And that superpower, or just an ability that I didn't know about. And that ability was that I was pretty comfortable amongst my engineer peers being very deep, kind of technically. But I also could talk to, for whatever reason, I was comfortable talking to sales and marketing and businessy type people. And no one in my fellow engineer group uh, wanted to talk to any of those people. Mm-hmm. I did not realize this was a unique, not a unique thing, but like a, a thing that's uncommon in engineers, especially back then, like we were way more, I'm introverted and I was the most extroverted of the, of the engineers, right? right. Like everyone's very quiet. I mean, I was working with guys who were building like device drivers and, you know, Unix kernels and all this kind of stuff. And they were not talking to any business people. Mm-hmm. And so what happened to me was I was actually pulled out of, of just coding because the business guys in various places would sort of attach themselves to me because they'd be like, oh, you're the only one who will talk to us. And uh, all of a sudden, you know, I was like 21 or 22 and they'd be like, you should, you should manage the engineering team. And I was like, why should I? (laughs) Like, I don't know anything. And uh, really what they were saying, and it took me years to like look back and understand what was happening was like that I was able to communicate with them in a way that other people either couldn't or weren't willing to. And that was my thing. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that pulled me out of just being an engineer because you always, I think you have to find like the intersection of two things that you can do that are, you know, make you somewhat rare or somewhat unique in in that ability. Mm -hmm. So are you totally out of coding now? 
Yeah, unfortunately, I think I haven't coded since my last startup, which is we sold in 2011. So yeah, yeah, long time. I wish I could code. My dream is to actually never talk to anyone and to put on headphones and code. <laughs> that is my dream. Because that is great because you are the master of the universe in that world. Whether you're a designer, developer, whatever, you rule your universe, right? You have like almost no dependencies. Uh, you can create something out of nothing. You can amaze people. You can get real-time feedback in what you created. It's like amazing. But when you go out to create products and companies and all that kind of stuff, like the feedback loop is so slow. Mm-hmm. It can take years to understand like the thing I did today in terms of working with a team did it have any impact? Did I do anything? Like, I don't know. I don't know if I did anything. I don't know if it actually made a difference. Where if you're designing something or you're building something, it's like that. It's like, oh, that was amazing. Look at that. Right. That's awesome. That's a hard thing, which I always talk to a lot of makers who are transitioning from maker to manager. It's a hard thing to go from like immediate satisfaction to like, I don't know if I did something today. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I had an impact. When you're starting out, when you're starting Drift, you mentioned you had Elias, who's your co-founder, yep. right? Mm-hmm. Was there a draw to you to say, "Let <laughs> me get in there. Let me, let me, let me do this." Oh man, you don't know how strong it was, so strong. But you know, I met my co-founder like three companies ago, and um, he's a far faster and far better engineer than I ever was. And so I've I've submitted to him to that is his superpower, super strength, and one of many. But like. So I can't keep up with him. I cannot keep up with these boys mm-hmm. any longer. So I definitely did want to do that. I did a lot of um, kind of a mock-up, more product management level work, like mock-up, user testing, a lot of Envision prototypes, all that kind of stuff. So I did do that stuff. So I did get the satisfaction from doing that, but actual no coding. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like <laughs> you have the same additive, important nature to your work, but you're just working on something else besides writing code? Uh, Yes, uh, but it's taken me a long time to be comfortable with that, Mm -hmm. right? Develop comfort there. And I figured out like, I'm actually good helping on high level, kind of on the product stuff, on product. And then from a theme standpoint and like where we're, that kind of stuff um, and understanding the customer because I have worked with this type of customer for so long and marketing which blows me away because I you know I was an engineer and I never did marketing or never learned marketing but over the years I've been around marketing so long that I've actually I think I'm okay at marketing now so I've developed those skills and and those skills give me that immediate kind of feedback loop that I'm doing something that I'm contributing that I'm actually putting points on the board and I'm not just occupying uh, oxygen how quickly did you grow drift or or how conscious was okay we're going to raise money now and at mm-hmm. what point in that and then okay we're going to hire and you know how did that come together yeah so um we ended up raising money from like day 1 before mm-hmm. we even started the company although the original intention of starting the company was that i was going to fund it personally and that maybe we wouldn't raise money for this business i thought about that and then i uh that was my intention and then i thought about the type of business that we wanted to build i thought like this is going to be and I still think this will be my last company. And uh, actually, my wife has told me this is going to be my last company. <laughs> so it'll be my last company. And so I thought like, okay, if we want to build something that achieves a certain kind of scale, a certain kind of size, the likelihood of doing that is very low. But let's say we want to do that. And should we have an approach where we're just going for it? And it's going to be the way I described it is going to be 
a home run or a crater. Like it's going to be binary, which is a very deliberate approach. And I wouldn't suggest that for everyone, right? That was what I was thinking about in terms of starting the business. And so I thought, okay, I know the economics of SaaS and I know like we're going to need money at some point because just the way that SaaS economics work. And so I thought, okay, we'll have to raise money at some point. And then one of our old investors showed up literally with a check and said, like, we want to invest in you guys. And he had invested three times before in other companies. Mm -hmm. And it was someone that we trusted and we had a lot of respect for and a lot of chemistry with. And so, and wasn't going to be honest about like, have we launched yet? You know, what's going on? You know, Mm -hmm. it was going to let us manage the company the way we wanted to. And so we ended up taking that money. But then we acted like we were bootstrapped, right? We wouldn't spend any money. And this is an important thing. You have to understand what stage of the business you're at. And so many of the mistakes that I've made in the past and probably do make now has to do with misinterpreting what stage you are in the business. Uh And so as an example for us, like we were in that early stage trying to figure out what was the wedge to get into the market, right? Like what was, how were we going to get in that market? And so in that stage, even though we had money and we had a lot of money that we had raised, I wouldn't spend any money. Uh, We worked out of a local climbing gym here for free in Boston. It's called Brooklyn Boulders. And Mm -hmm. so we would go climbing and we would work from there in this little co-working space that we didn't have to pay for, even though we had millions of dollars in the bank. And then after that, when that got too noisy, then we moved into our, I asked our investor if we could work out of his office, right? And he's like, what? You guys have money. And so I wouldn't pay for rent again. And again, we were just focused on the problem. And then eventually we got office space and I got the cheapest office space I could get because I understood what stage we were at. Then we hit a stage towards the end of last year, 2017, kind of the the middle of last, next year, last year, I should say, 2017, where it was time to go. We had hit a different stage. Mm-hmm. And at that point, we have began rapidly growing. And we went, we entered 2017 at like 20 some odd people. We ended last year at 100 people, right? We are 120 something right now in 2018. We'll end this year at like 200 and some odd, two, low 200s. Mm-hmm. That's kind of crazy. It's insane. But we were at a long time in our history, five people, yeah. 17 people, 30 people, just because we were at that stage where we hadn't fully figured it out. The fit wasn't totally there. We didn't understand like there was not value in pouring more money into this machine, even if we had it, because we were not going to get the right return out of the machine. And so having that kind of constraint and knowing like when to switch stage and not is pretty hard. Right. Because you have this stuff, you're like, why can't I not work in this climbing gym? Mm-hmm. Right. Why can't I rent an office and maybe get a chair? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Who was your first non founder hire? We hired two people at the same time, two engineers. So we hired two engineers pretty early on from the beginning. And I'd say, but pretty quickly after that, these almost came right mm-hmm. after another. We hired someone that had worked for us at our last company who was actually a recruiter. Weirdly enough, right? Like totally crazy because like I said, we didn't hire that many people until recently, but we hired him early because he was so fundamental in building the culture from a hiring standpoint, which we take very seriously. Like at our last company and he had gone from help us hire from zero to 200 at that company by himself. And uh, he was just someone that we really believed in and we hired him from the beginning. And he was amazing because a lot of times we weren't recruiting for anything. We we're yeah. always recruiting, but he wasn't fully busy. And so mm-hmm. he would do everything in the company. He would help with any job in the company. And it takes a special person to be mm-hmm. able to, to do that. 
So was that totally intentional or was it a combination of knowing that it was important and him becoming available? No, we definitely went and took him out of his uh, where he was and said like, and we thought to ourselves, if we ever start a company, he's going to be amongst the first handful that we would hire. That's, it strikes me as unusual, relatively unusual. (laughs) It is unusual. (laughs) I haven't met someone else that's done that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So then what was after that in terms of major additions to the team? We hired our first designer onto the team like a month or two after that. And, uh, She's been with us since the very beginning, and uh, which is brave of her because, we, again, we were working out of, we were like five dudes in a, I can't describe how small of an office we were in. We were just like sitting shoulder to shoulder to shoulder to shoulder uh, with boxes of sunflower seeds and, uh, you know, mm-hmm. jerky and other weird snacks in there. We probably didn't smell that great. And uh, she came onto the team and it takes a lot to be the first female on the team, especially in that kind of situation. And uh, she's been amazing. And she's one of our lead designers Mm -hmm. to this date. So she was very brave to come on. Was it someone that you knew before? No, uh, it wasn't. We had worked with so many great designers in the past, but we were looking for someone that was ready for this early stage where it Mm -hmm. was like rapid kind of prototyping and throwing things away and starting from scratch and kind of kind of could lean into that. And uh, a lot of the people that we have worked in the past were amazing, but like it's hard, not only for designers, but hard for developers to be okay with like, okay, we're going to be in this stage and we might be in this stage for a year where everything I do, we just throw away and delete. Mm-hmm. Right? Like that is like a crushing kind of thing. And she had some unique ability to do that where we thought a lot of designers we had worked with before were, would not like that. Yeah. Okay. And then from there, what was next? After that, we just continued to try to grow the engineering team Mm -hmm. and then uh, brought on our second designer that same year. And then we kind of stayed like that as a team for a while. We didn't have anyone outside of designers and engineers. I played the kind of PM. That's exactly what I was going to ask. So does that (laughs) mean that you're working on the backlog, figuring out what's next, prioritizing things? Totally. So I'm working on the backlog. I'm, d- I'm working with our designer, Elise, like at that point, uh, prototyping, doing designs, mm-hmm. testing things, uh, going out in the market, talking to prospective customers, talking to customers that we had, just rapid, rapid, rapid testing all the time. And so that was kind of my job in documenting a lot of things uh, that we've now thrown away. But you know, at that <laughs> point, we're, we're useful. And so I was the product manager and my co-founder was kind of the head of engineering, was coding all the time. And then we had engineers and designers. And we didn't really, it was probably a year and a half before we added anyone that was not an engineer or designer to the team. And who was that? Uh, That was our first marketing hire, right? So we hired this guy who we didn't know, um, Mm -hmm. but he had worked at the company we were at previously. Uh, We didn't overlap with him. He interviewed me for a podcast because he had his own podcast. Uh (laughs) <laughs> yeah, just like this one. It was like, you know, Boston Entrepreneurs kind of like podcast yep. type of thing. It's called Tech in Boston. Yep. And uh, he then left, went back to his job, and then like a week later said, I want to work at Drift. Mm-hmm. Like I've interviewed, 50, I was his 50th guest, I think. I've interviewed 50 people, and the idea for Drift and the team is super compelling. I want to work here. And we said, oh, we don't have a job. We're not hiring anybody mm-hmm. in marketing. We're just hiring engineers and what have you. But he was getting married at the time. We said, go on your honeymoon. When you come back, we'll talk. And he would not take no for an answer. He said, no, I'm not going to leave. Uh, he came back to our office until you make me an offer. 
And we were like, what? What's, go what's going on here? What are you going to do? Like, I don't know what we're going to do. And he's like, nope, I want to work here. And I know it's going to happen. I'm going to go on my honeymoon and you're going to find someone else. I'm not going to take no for an answer. And so we were like, okay, I guess we'll, we'll hire you. And so we hired him. He's now our VP of marketing. He's kind of grown through, you know, as being an individual contributor marketing to now running marketing. And it's just been like one of the most amazing learning machines that I've been around. Him and my co-founder, I'd say, are two of the most coachable and fastest growing people that I've been around. And we try to like one of our things that we're obsessed about, probably because I'm obsessed about around it is learning and progression. And I've never seen the two people progress faster than those two. So you didn't feel like you were ready to add no. marketing to the team in part because you feel like you have skills there, right? Yeah, I have some skills there. But you weren't ready to scale yet either, right? Exactly. We weren't mm -hmm. ready to scale yet. And I was like, what is he going to market? What are we going to do? And actually, it was we were fortunate that we said yes, uh, because he's amazing. And two, we actually did need help in marketing. We just didn't see it yet, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, it turned out to like building that initial audience you know, it takes time, right? As all of us know. And like, we were probably discounting how much time it took. And so it was probably perfectly timed uh, when he came on. So we're lucky that he didn't leave our office. <laughs> so um, speaking of marketing, you just recently, you did this thing where you essentially took over LinkedIn. I know you took over my <laughs> timeline. I apologize. <laughs> it's okay. No, um, it was pretty impactful. Where does that idea come from? And then how did you execute on it? <laughs> yeah. So that idea came from uh, me just waking up one day thinking about that. I didn't think it was going to turn out as well as it did turn out. So one thing that we're always talking about internally, not to geek out too hard on marketing stuff, is that... Um, We've had these tenants around like, hey, we don't want to market like everyone else. We want to build a brand in terms of building our company. And I've thought about this from the beginning. Like, I want to build a global brand. I want to build a brand that resonates with people. I don't want to build a software brand. And I don't want to build a Boston software brand. And I don't want to build maybe even a global software brand. I want to build a brand, right? Mm -hmm. And um, how do you do that? I don't know. I've never done it. And I started to like really geek out on Mad Men era type brand building, you know, the early days of agencies and started doing a lot of reading and research and thinking about that. And the reason that I cared about it was not just some ego trip like I want to build a brand. It was actually had to do with something that we talked about earlier, which was like really understanding what phase of the market we're in. And like I said earlier, like I realized when we started the company that we were in a phase of the market where we had infinite supply where we would have and do have hundreds of competitors, could have thousands of competitors. Mm -hmm. And so in that world, if you're gonna start something new, then you can't, from a marketing standpoint, adopt the same playbook that everyone else has. And you're gonna have to figure out how you stand out and what are good models, role models out there for doing that. And I started to look at consumer packaged goods companies, you know, mm -hmm. basically companies who sell dog food and shampoo and, you know, laundry detergent and all this mm -hmm. kind of stuff that you buy in the middle aisles of the supermarket and started to think like, how do you introduce one of those things? How do you build a brand around that? How did Whole Foods build a brand in, in the supermarket kind of category? And so that's why we invested so much in that. Segway, fast forward to doing this LinkedIn thing that you saw. Part of the brand that we've been trying to build is that we just want to be ourselves, right? Like we don't want to have highly produced videos or highly produced stories. We just want to like, we're going to write emails like the way that we talk. And sometimes those would be grammatically incorrect, but that's okay. That's exactly how we talk. We're going to just do a podcast that's just unscripted, that's just two people talking just like we are now. 
And then when we do any of our marketing, it's just going to be us, mistakes and all. And all of that, like when I say it out loud, it's like, yeah, that's obvious. Yeah, mm-hmm. whatever. There's no secret there. And it's like, actually, it's right. pretty hard. And nobody actually does it, even though that sounds like it's the simple thing, which it is. No one actually does it because we all have egos and we all have pride. And it's hard to like, maybe you're going to say something accidentally when you're unscripted that you're going to regret or that it's going to make you look dumb or feel dumb or be embarrassed or whatever. And so like being okay with that is actually really hard, but that's what we've leaned into. And so when we did, we have this thing where we launch a new product every month Yeah. and people are always like, Oh dude, do you mean a feature, like a feature of a product? No, we launch a product, right? Like what we consider a full product category, like every month, which is a whole different story. And so we call it a marketable moment every month. And so we were thinking about this past month and we were thinking like, why don't we ask everyone in the company? And again, I woke up with this idea. Why don't we ask everyone in the company that's just like, hey, what about if instead of you retweeting something that we wrote or like sharing something, a video that we did, why don't you just shoot a video? And just like, that's all we said. Like, it wasn't that highly coordinated, though lots of people have been asking us, like, what was the rollout plan and how did you check and how did you ensure this and how did you make sure? And we were like, uh, it is the sum of the people that we have on the team. Yeah. We didn't tell them anything. We just said, hey, just announce the product, whatever you way you want, and just post it on LinkedIn. And it was people in all different roles. Oh, everyone. Yeah. People in security, designers, mm-hmm. someone in legal, uh, CFO, you know, like every mm-hmm. single person. So 100 and some odd people posted these videos on the team on LinkedIn and it was whatever that some people were skiing, some people were offsite, some people were in the office, some people were at home, some people were walking the dog. Like it was just like, mm-hmm. they just posted it. And it ended up taking over <laughs> from what we hear, even from the LinkedIn people, it ended up taking over LinkedIn for the day. We didn't know that was possible, mm-hmm. right? We were not trying to hack that. We just wanted everyone to share kind of their version of this and just be them, right? In whatever way with no lighting, no makeup, no script, nothing. So you mentioned the monthly product launches, which I definitely wanted to talk about. (laughs) But I'm curious, how do you organize the team to be able to execute on that while also maintaining the products Mm -hmm. you've already launched? Yeah, super hard. That's the first question that every engineer and designer asks. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. It's like, it does not make any sense. The way that we do it is we have this philosophy and I've written about it. I wrote this little book called Hypergrowth. And we started this at our two companies ago where we, you know, a lot of people do it now. Like Spotify has this idea of squads and Mm -hmm. other people have written about this kind of idea. But we've had a similar idea where we break down products into squads, very small teams of three. We originally got the idea from talking to some early Google and early Facebook people. Mm -hmm. And we tried all different permutations, three people, five people, seven people, whatever. In the end, it was three engineers, a designer, a PM would work on a team and they would own a product from conceiving the product to testing the product, to launching the product, to supporting to the product, to, and then iterating on the product. Yep. So we have that model. So we believe in this highly parallel process where if we want to add new products like we do, like we are talking about now, we will add new teams mm-hmm. and those teams will own that. And so even though it seems like the whole team is working on a new product, they're not. It's a small, very small team of maybe three people that are working on that. And at the same time, all the other teams who are also going to launch products at different times in the year are working on supporting their existing product or working on supporting and plus building this new product that might launch in six months from now. Right. So each month you're not starting and finishing something new. The individual squads are working on their thing for however long it takes. 
Yeah, we have teams right now that are working on something for September. We have another team working on August. Every month, yeah. there are teams that are working on that who are dedicated to that. And most of them at this point are also supporting their existing product. Yep. And their products are not separate. They're totally related. They're in the same category, even yeah. though it might be a new product. And do squads generally know what month they're targeted for? Yeah. yeah. Yep, they do now. And they've come up with that on their own, right? They've come yeah, up they've with come like- up with that on their own. Uh huh. They've come up with that timing on their own. Uh, we generally have themes, you know, is the way that I think about it. We don't have external roadmaps. I mean, each team comes up with their individual roadmaps. I don't ever see any of that stuff, but like we don't share any of that with customers right. or publicly, but um, we have themes. Hey, these are the categories of types of products that we would like to build, right? Or we'd like to conquer that hill over there mm -hmm. and that other hill over there. How we actually build an operational plan of like, what the product does and what features it has or doesn't or how it looks or how should it, what's the bare minimum versus, you know, V2, V3. We have no say in the, the product teams had that autonomy. They decide all that working with customers and prospective customers hand in hand. I don't ever see any of that. I have no idea, you know, what that's going to look like. When do you see it? Uh, I usually see it probably a few weeks before the marketable moment might happen. Yep. There's some rare situations where I see it sooner than that, but almost never. So it might be like two to three weeks, even though the team may have been working on it for a couple months, or three months. Mm -hmm. I've never seen it before. I don't know what it looks like. Our customers have seen it far before like I see it and far before maybe some of the other teams in the company have seen that product. Have there been times where you see something and you say, oh, I think we're on the wrong track here? <laughs> uh Yes, of course. Uh, I've heard of the concepts uh, before. Mm -hmm. And so we we have a wiki and they have stuff on the wiki. Yeah. Not very super detailed, but and we'll have discussions about that. And um, definitely there have been times we're in the wrong track. We have this practice that each of the teams every week, we have this thing called show and tell every Friday. Four o'clock, we have this company meeting and they show things that have been shipped, mm -hmm. right? And the sales team and the marketing team and everyone shows and despite being at four o'clock on Friday, it's actually one of the most fun things we do. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes you'll see things that are leading up to a new product there and we can catch stuff. Other times they have a practice of when they're working on a big new thing that's gonna be released, every week they're posting these internal videos of basically walkthroughs of the product. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't see those, my co-founder sees them and he's mm -hmm. pretty close and so he has an idea on that. But more times than not, it's the customers, and this is the intent, the yeah. customers who are telling us that we're on the wrong track and not me or him because right. we're not the customer. Right, right. I can imagine you would be, in the, in the kind of culture that you're describing, you would be very cognizant of coming in as someone who wasn't talking to the customers and mm -hmm. sort of torpedoing the process. Yeah, 100%. And a lot of time, I actually, we spend most of our times with the product teams reiterating over and over that they are not the customer, mm -hmm. right? And because things will creep in, we all have personal preferences. Oh, mm -hmm. I don't like that number, it's too big. Or I don't like this tab, or I don't like the way we designed this thing. And it's like, but you're not the customer. Like, oh, I would prefer it to look like this. And it's like, no one hears the customer. Like, have we? what do we talk to a customer? Mm -hmm. And that's always the source of truth. And for us, for three companies now, we've built our organization, 
our teams around this kind of customer centric approach and the customer being the only person that's right in the scenario and that none of us are right. Like, because we're not the end customers, we are not marketing and sales or support or any of these things. Although we might start out being customer zero when we do for all of our products, like, and we use them every day, we are not the customer and our version of like what we would like as we grow and add more customers diverges, right? Even though you were the best customer zero over time, you start to diverge from the market. Mm. So my potentially final question, you may Mm -hmm. have actually just answered, which (laughs) is, so you've done three companies now. You also invest and advise startups. If you had to give some advice or what is the advice you find yourself giving most often to Mm. companies when they're starting a don't make this mistake. Yeah. This is actually my fifth company, my third with my co-founder, but my fifth. Oh, okay. But okay, here's the advice I give the most. Number one, innovate, don't invent Mm -hmm. all the time. We talk about this almost every day inside of Drift, right? Like despite what all of us think, all of us that are building software, like we're not inventing anything new, right? We might be inventing new patterns, new approaches, new things, new solutions, but the problems that we're solving are problems that have existed in some way, especially us, that we build software for businesses. Like, Mm -hmm. it's been solved before. So, therefore, uh, your job is to innovate on something, not invent, like try to innovate on a problem, not be looking for new inventions. And it's hard because we all have pride and we want to invent something out of nothing. And really, what we need to do is innovate and innovate on a problem. And That's a hard one because when I talk to entrepreneurs, especially, uh, and I was one of these, like we are sold a Hollywood dream of like that we are going to be in the shower and we're going to have some great idea and then Mm -hmm. that great idea is going to become some company and that idea that I had in the shower is going to be the company. And and my thing that I always say to people is like that has never been true one time. Like that doesn't exist. Like I haven't, I don't know, I've met thousands, Mm -hmm. more than thousands of entrepreneurs now. There's never been that version of the story. And even when you think it's that, it yes. really is just solving a problem that people already have. <laughs> totally. And all of us that have actually built products know that it's an iterative game. It's a game of mm-hmm. iteration, right? Like, And it should be because that's like, I think, the natural law, right? Like uh, whether it's an art or science, two ends of a spectrum, it's both iteration. No one has written you know, their first draft of something and then that becomes the Pulitzer winning book. Like that doesn't exist. Like no one has like, I just had an idea and this is this amazing breakthrough. No, it's been this kind of iterative trial and error experimentation kind of, you know, roundabout way to get to Mm -hmm. whatever your answer is. It's never this clean straight line, but we've been sold this clean straight line. And so we're, we're looking for this invention where it's better to go out and innovate in the category, go out and find a problem that already exists and then try to innovate and solve, come up with a novel solution to it. And I'd say the second thing that I always tell people, which is part of number one, is that you actually don't wanna shy away from highly commoditized markets. You wanna look for commoditized markets, right? Because commoditized markets means that there's a market. Number Mm -hmm. one, there's the man in that market. And if it is reached a point of commoditization in that market, then there's probably very little innovation that's happening in that market. And what you should look for is an external reason that you might be able to resegment or rethink this market, right? And we can talk of countless examples there. You know, everyone wants to go and tell me about Steve Jobs examples, but every <laughs> Steve Jobs product has been an innovation in an existing category that existed right. long before they released any product. 
But mm-hmm. I don't know, somehow people forget that part. <laughs> right. They're like, oh, they invented the iPhone. It's like, no, I had a touchscreen phone, which was a piece of junk, but I had one right. many, 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 many years before that thing ever mm-hmm. came out. Right. And it ran on Linux and it was a piece of junk and it was not useful. But that idea existed a long time before. Mm-hmm. The amazing thing that they did was build this amazing product and ecosystem and this. And but they did it at the time that the market was ready for that. Right. Where that original version, the market was not ready for it. Mm-hmm. David, thanks for sharing. I really appreciate it. And I'm sure <laughs> thanks for letting me rant. Too. Oh, it's great. <laughs> If folks want to follow along with you, and I know you mentioned you have a podcast. Sure. So we have a podcast called Seeking Wisdom, and it's on iTunes. You can find it or Stitcher. And then uh, you can follow me on any social media channel. I'm always D-Cancel, D-C-A-N-C-E-L, or Drift, D-R-I-F-T. Thanks for having me on. Oh, thank you. You can subscribe to the show and find notes for this episode at giantrobots.fm. And you can find me at cpytel on Twitter. If you have questions or comments, email us at hosts at giantrobots.fm, and we can try to answer them on the air. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you enjoyed this episode, and I really hope you did, do me a favor and tell a friend about it. It really helps. See you next time. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, Raleigh, and Washington, D.C., let's build something great together.